Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN. That's the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters, a.k.a. The Ant Hill. Today is Thursday, February the 16th, 2012. And we have a really cool guest today. His name is... Fuzz Sanderson, like F-U-Z, Fuzz Sanderson. He's going to talk to us today about earth skills gatherings, earth skills and primitive skills in general. Uh, some of the things going on with uh, stuff out there as far as wildlife, too, because he's also an endangered species biologist. This should be a good show. We're going to talk about reconnecting what it, what, what it actually means to be a human, forming community, and regaining the wisdom of our ancestors. How cool is that? Before we do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Fortress Defense Consultants. That's Frank Sharp Jr.'s operation up there in Illinois. Now, I know what you're thinking. Illinois, I live in Arizona or Florida or I don't know where you live, but you live somewhere other than Illinois, and you're thinking, I'd like to take some of this training with Frank Sharp at Fortress Defense Consultants, but traveling to Illinois is going to take a lot of time and additional expense. Well, why don't you do this then? Why don't you talk to people at your local rod and gun club, people that you're at work with, people you go to the range with, maybe get together a Boy Scouts group or whatever, and everybody chip in and get in touch with Frank, and he will put customized training together and come to your location. If you have half a dozen or more, it's very cost-effective, and they can probably find a location to conduct the training at anywhere. And some of you guys that have larger larger uh, pieces of land and all, they will even uh, conduct training and do consulting on private property. So get in touch with Frank today. Now, if you are in Illinois, take a look at the class schedule. Or if you're near, near Illinois, take a look at the class schedule. Get up there and get some training. The big thing is your weapon is only as good as its operator, as good as you might think you you are, you can always get better. That's why Frank not only trains, but he and his staff all take training from other trainers every year because they practice what they preach. If you're not getting better, you're getting worse. Where have you heard that before? Next up today, the Berkey guy at directive21.com. What would you get from the Berkey guy? I'll tell you what you get. Berkey water filtration systems. And the reality is you can get a Berkey water filtration uh, system from tons and tons and tons of people. So why go to Jeff? Because you're going to get 100% satisfaction. That's why. Sometimes things go wrong with the United States mail. If it does, he will fix it. Sometimes, no matter how tight quality control might be, something goes wrong. If it is, he will fix it. Sometimes you're not sure what you need, and you want to call somebody and get honest advice and not be upsold just because they can. If you do that with Jeff, that's what he'll give you. I just had a person email me that was at the Self-Reliance Expo down in Mesquite, Texas. They went over to Jeff's booth. They said there were Berkeys everywhere, but when they walked up and talked to Jeff, told them they were from this audience, he bent over backwards to make sure they got exactly what they needed, made everything easy, and uh, had a great conversation with them as well. That's the Berkey guy. That's why he's been a sponsor for three years now. Check him out at directive21.com. Next up, want to remind you, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. I gave away a free MSB yesterday on Facebook. I post a picture of that little cardinal that flew his poor self into my door on Monday, and he looked really mad. He looked like one of the angry birds. And I just played a little fun game with the audience. I said, if you don't put me down, I am going to blank. And the, uh, the person with the best response said, uh, first of all, the person was named Scott, and he said, 
I'm going to lobby Congress to pass a law making it illegal for you or anyone else to ever pick up a cardinal, propose the phasing out of glass doors by the year 2020, and earmark $10 billion for sunflower farming subsidies. There were a lot of great ones on there. That was... Uh, That was a pretty cool one, though, and I, I, it's very subjective. I picked the one that made me chuckle the most, and I thought the most creativity went into. A lot of people said that he was going to poop on my hand. Humorous, but after 15 people said it, it kind of wore off. This one was unique and original. So, uh, Scott, I've posted on Facebook that you're the winner. Please email me or PM me. Uh, to claim your free MSB. So there's one reason to connect with me on Facebook. I like to do fun little things like that once in a while. Next up, I wanted to give you a little bit of a report back on Starbucks. I'll give you a couple people that uh, wrote in on the blog. Roundabout said, went to two different Starbucks, one in the a.m., one in the afternoon. I got blank looks, followed by never heard about it. It seemed they didn't care. One young gal said, cool, people need to get a grip and not be so worried about others' business. What do I care if you carry a gun? Or what do I care if you're gay? Something you can just never change. You can't make all guns disappear and you can't make people not gay. But I've not heard about any of this. People are so irritating. I actually thought that was a pretty good quote. Uh, had had also a few day, been a few days prior to spread the word about coming February 14th. Not a person had heard about it. All said whatever. One said can't believe how many people will protest stupid stuff. Most are just looking for a way to complain about stuff because they have no life. I live in southwest Washington, Starbucks on every corner, two in our small town, but one dentist and no doctor's office. Uh, John says, a girl behind the counter was very friendly. I went in to pay with a $2 bill. She just said, oh, wow, $2 bills. I explained the whole thing to her, and although she didn't know about it, she seemed genuinely interested about it and thanked me for coming in. As I was leaving, I think I saw her taking uh, a few single dollars out of her bag and taking my $2 bills for herself. Laugh out loud. Uh, let's see if I can find a couple more of them here. Uh, Manuel says, I went to Starbucks at noon yesterday. The lady behind the counter acted surprised when I told her about why I was there. She expressed that she was very surprised by her employee's, employer's position on the Second Amendment, but was familiar with the incident that occurred two years ago that prompted this event. By the time I received my coffee and was leaving, she was commending me on my efforts and very pleased that people were taking a stand in support of the Second Amendment. So that was a good one. Uh, this one's kind of funny. Steven says, went to Starbucks yesterday, never been more out of place in my life. The first sign that I had arrived in Snobville was a Range Rover double parked in front of both doors. <laughs> Second was a line to the counter was out the doors. I stood in line, I checked my surroundings, never having been to the other side of the tracks before. I noticed I was the only blue collar guy in the place and therefore stood out like a sore thumb. I can't imagine they weren't sure what to make of me either. The only contact most of these folks would have with a mechanic would be looking through and the waiting room window. Due to the volume of people in line at the tables talking on their phones or working their novels, working on their novels on laptops, I could see no sign of the boycott. And upon paying for my order with my $2 bill, saw the amazed look on the young lady's face that said, they still make $2 bills? So not a long, not a long lot of support for either side here. I took a moment to explain the reason for my being there, but as I stated, the line was long and using my situational awareness, I noted I was outnumbered 30 to 1 in favor of the yuppies. I wish you had hit the nail on the head when you said I wouldn't have to listen to the odd coffee orders. I have no idea what people in the line ahead of me were ordering because I was thinking of something totally different every time I heard, give me a double shot of. 
Um, Raymond, Shorty Butler, says about 4.30 p.m., told the drive-thru clerk that I was there to support Starbucks, support of the Second Amendment. He had pl- replied that he'd only just heard about it, but wasn't sure what it meant. I explained that there was a group who called for a boycott on the 14th that Starbucks allowed legal concealed carry. He replied, who would call for a boycott against legal constitutional act? Of course, if you're, you're legal, you can carry here. I gave him a handshake and a large tip. There's a bunch more. You can read them on the uh, episode from yesterday with Stephen Harris in the comments. I did want to note someone who didn't have quite as good an experience, but I think it was more about somebody being suspicious about $2 bill because, let's just face it, they were poorly trained and not very smart. Um, but my buddy Brian Black at ITS, who always does things big, had a great big meetup. Let me read you the post on his blog. We had a fantastic turnout for the ITS organized boycott event at Starbucks this morning. It was great to see so many people come out and support the Second Amendment and have a cup of coffee with us. Our peaceful hangout even had the Hearst Police Department come by to see how things were going. We first showed up at Starbucks this morning with our guns and coffee patches on, of course. They weren't all that receptive to our presence, as you'll see in the video below. They Marked all our $2 bills to see if they were counterfeited and wouldn't accept the majority of them. You can also see in our photos our bills are perfectly legit, even verified as such by the officers that showed up. It's tough to support a company that seems to not want to be supported, at least at the Starbucks on Pipeline in 820 in Fort Worth, Texas. As mentioned, the police showed up with a report that we were demonstrating outside when all the roughly 20 of us were doing was standing around talking and drinking coffee. The officer also laughed when he showed up We showed him the $2 bills. The improperly trained Starbucks employees had marked up. They tried to say that the ink smears on fake $2 bills. As it was our newly printed $2 bills, uh, despite me trying to say that smearing because it's new ink and that it turns black when the counterfeit detector pen is used to mark on it, Starbucks obviously needs to train these employees better at this location. It was great to have the support of the local police, and they all enjoyed the ITS patches and stickers we handed them. The first officer that walked up gave us a triumphant fist in the air and said, I'm with you guys. Thanks to everyone that showed up to support the boycott, including the guys from Chosen Tactical and Lone Star Medics. Even if employees didn't seem to want to support, they'll at least remember while we were there. I'm continually humbled by the awesome people who have helped make ITS grow into all that it is. Can't wait for the next meetup that may be mistaken as a demonstration. Uh, so there you go. I really think by reading it, and I haven't talked to Brian yet about it, but I think these people were more put off by the $2 bills. The fact that they marked them all up and thought they were counterfeit, I think that they're just people that haven't ever seen one. And uh, I think this is what we should do as, as, a, as, a, as a group of people. Every time you feel like you need to go to Starbucks, spend a $2 bill. If you can you go to the bank and get a bunch of them, spend them. Keep it going on. Let's not just make it about once in a while. And occasionally, maybe a, a group of us should just organize meetups at Starbucks, go in and pay with twos and tell them. And uh, let people know which locations are like, yeah, man, thanks for being here, and which locations are idiots. The big thing, sometimes you'll meet resistance when you do the right thing. Be freaking nice. I don't know how many times I said it as we led up to this thing. Be nice. And that's the thing you'll see if you watch Brian's video. Even though they were a little weird, Brian was nice. Always be nice when you say you're there to support somebody. And remember, the barista that doesn't want your support is not the company that has backed the decision to not ban the weapons. In fact, when you find the employees that are resistant, note that any individual location could post a ban if they wanted to if corporate didn't tell them not to. 
Think about that when you're clamoring for support of the Second Amendment. All right, next up, real quick, before I bring our guest on, I just want to remind you guys about the Member Support Brigade. You join that, you're supporting the show at 20 cents an episode. You get a bunch of free stuff. And the big thing, big announcement on the MSB, I did land Paladin Press as a supporter for you guys. I will be making that adjustment to the MSB later in the day, and then I will announce it once I do on the blog and on the Twitter and Facebook and all that jazz. But Paladin Press is giving a 15% discount on the purchase of all of their materials. Uh, and the discount code will be available to MSB members as soon as I get it into your uh, member support brigade back office area. So yet another reason to join. Remember, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, prior service. Email me before you join and get a special discount code. Put something like uh, military discount or service discount in the subject line so it comes to my attention quickly. And I will give you a special discount code. With that, I have the housekeeping wrapped up, and uh, I know I went a little long today because I wanted to give an AAR on Starbucks Appreciation Day. I just thought it was cool to hear back from people that actually went. Um, now I get to introduce uh, a really cool guy, and I'm really excited to bring him on, and he's going to tell us about all the work that they're doing with Earth Skills Gatherings. His name is Fuzz Sanderson. He's an endangered species biologist. He's a wilderness skills teacher. He's been running Earth Skills uh, Gathering as a coordinator for quite a long time now. He's also a husband, father of two boys, 10 and 8. He's also a musician and a craftsman, and he's really passionate about building community and teaching and reviving earth skills and primitive skills. Hey, Fuzz, welcome to the Survival Podcast, man. Hey, thanks. Thanks, Jack. Glad to be here. Cool. So, I mean, let's just kind of start out with some, some people are looking at earth skills, and they, they might have an idea of exactly what that means. But uh, if we're going to go to an earth skills gathering, I'm assuming that we are going to practice something called earth skills. So what exactly is an earth skill? Um, that is a great question. Earth skills can be pretty broadly defined um, as any skill that you know in dealing with the earth. But in the context that we're speaking, uh, we sometimes refer to them as primitive skills um, or uh, uh, ancestral skills. And what we're really looking at is understanding some of the ways that our ancestors have lived in harmony on the earth. Um, Barry Wood has a fantastic quote about it. He says, we're trying to learn and practice the ways of our ancestors, all of our ancestors. Whether we came out of the caves of Europe or off the plains of Africa, we descended from the survivors, and they survived because they learned how to live on the earth in a natural way and use its resources for food, clothing, and shelter. And that's what we're learning and relearning with earth skills. Very cool. So, I mean, I guess you could say what what are maybe some examples specifically? I mean, I would think friction fire would be one, but are there some other ones that maybe people wouldn't generally think of? Yeah, there's, well, there's friction fire is a huge one. Um, we can talk more about that. Um, flint mapping, of course, which is, you know, making arrowheads or spear points. Um, the, the three big ones we consider are friction fire, flint mapping, and the fiber arts. And when we refer to the fiber arts, we're talking about you know, you can take the bark of a tree or the sinew of an animal and turn it into rope, something to tie your world together. Uh, there are many, many other skills which branch out from the earth skills rendezvous. So we're talking hide scraping, taking the hide of an animal and turning it into clothing, or making baskets, or learning edible and medicinal plants. Um, recently, we have expanded into a little bit more on permaculture uh, and some other areas of of skills that you know people may have used in the past and, and what really we're looking at in the future. We've had classes on everything from Tai Chi to um, to hand drumming uh, or didgeridoo, you know, music making and things like that. So 
it is fairly broad. There is a list of, uh, of skills, you know, under the group, the greater heading of Earth skills. It's pretty broad. That's really cool, and I think there's probably a lot of things like that. But I do, I do kind of like the core there. Basically, um, fiber skills, which would be cordage making, and then everything you can do with cordage, uh, flint napping, which is actually building a blade, and then fire, which is your energy source. And if you think about somebody that would go off and do just do general bushcrafting, but would buy something to go out and do with it, the things they're going to be concerned with is a way to make fire. Uh, a, a good knife and a way to bind things together. So, I mean, if you look at any, from a micro kit to a, a sizable wilderness kit, your cutting tool, your cordage, uh, and your fire making, your combustion device are all critical. So, what you guys are saying is there was a time when, when you wanted to make fire, you didn't go over to, uh, Sportsman's Guide and buy a fire striker. Uh, you right. didn't go over to Buck and buy a knife, and you didn't run off to Walmart and buy, you know, a, a thousand feet of uh, tarred line for four bucks, which I, I don't think people, because of that, I don't think people really understand the value of something like cordage anymore. Yeah, and it's amazing, really, when, you, when, you're, when you're without it, how bad you need it. <laughs> you know, and I, I tell you, I think one of the greatest things about this experience is once you start to, to get a, a basic handle, you know, you can't be an expert in everything. Sure. But you can learn to handle a few certain things. And once you get a handle on some of those things, your world just broadens so much. I, I mean, your perspective on what's going on around you is really greatly increased. I think um, now when I walk through the woods, my perception of the forest has changed. I see things in a completely different light now after having done this for many years. I, I know what what will burn and what won't. I know what the smoke, what kind of flavor that's going to impart in the meat, you know, if we're cooking over fire. Um, I know what will be good for a bow, what will be good for a drill, and what will be good for uh, my fireboard. It, you know, it, it, it just puts your pers- puts so many things in perspective. I know this tree might have some good bark for, you know, creating some twine. Um, these kind of rocks work better for making a sharp edge than um, this kind. Yeah, I, I know that over the years, my I think my timeline perspective has changed. So, when I was a kid, I used to go out into the bush all the time, fishing in the summer and hunting in the fall and winter. So you can bet that in the spring and summer, I was looking for things like blueberries, blackberries, wild strawberries. And then in the winter, about the only thing that would be out in the Pennsylvania woods that you could you could eat with regularity when the snow was on the ground, little melted patches, you'd find wintergreen with tea berries. Mm-hmm. But I was very centric on what I can use now. Where now when I take a walk somewhere, if there's any chance that I'm ever going to be there again, I'm looking for, you know, dried blackberry cane in the fall because I know that in the spring that means there'll be blackberries there. Where when I was a young kid, I was there all the time, but I really never thought that way. And I think that's like one of the perspectives that changes. You start to realize it's not just a berry you can eat while you're walking to the creek. It's something that actually can sustain you. And even if it's not sustaining you, it can add value to your life. Mm-hmm, exactly. Exactly. And we've got several instructors who teach. One of our one of our uh, prime instructors is a guy named Doug Elliott, who's um, uh, he's <laughs> Ranger Doug. We call him. He's a fantastic storyteller, and he is one of the best at his ability to impart knowledge on people in people with uh, a sense of humor, whether it be music or or a story or whatever it is. And um, yeah, he's just fantastic at doing uh, things just like that. So. You know, developing your levels of awareness in the course of learning some of these skills. I actually, you know, you mentioned you're doing more with like the permaculture stuff, and 
I wanted to, I didn't even think of it when we were chatting pre-show, but you just made me think of it now because of all the stuff you've been talking about with music and, and, and skills and storytelling. Uh, as I was going through a, a PDC that was run by Bill Mollison, um, mm-hmm. our culture design course, he was talking about a navigation skill that these aborigines in Australia use, and they would draw this shape and form on the ground, and then they'd sing this song, and you know, he had no idea what it was, but every one of them knew it, and what it was was a map. Right, and there were like these three looked like jelly beans, basically sized things they drew on the ground, and that was these three rocks. And you started there, and you took a certain bearing based on this diagram, and you would sing this song over and over again. And when you hit, you know, the the fifth rendition of it or whatever it was, right at that spot, you would turn, and they could navigate across this whole area by using music as a timing mechanism. Mm-hmm. They call it they call it sometimes a aidless navigation where I think it's kind of a funny term because it means you're not using your uh, you're not using your map and compass. The aid you're using is your song line. And you know how some songs are so catchy and they get stuck in your head and you can remember things based on a song. That's a really interesting thing about human psychology that, that we can do that. Um, we have had people teach that at the rendezvous as well, and, and it's fun. I haven't had the chance to take the class myself. I've read and learned a little bit about it, and I've kind of used it in my own way, but there are people who have real you know, great skill at teaching how to do this. And you know, you cross the river at this point, and this tree is, is looking this way, and you have a, you know, a way of creating a song that, yep. um, that you know, that really makes it stick in your head. And uh, I think I think it's a beautiful thing that people are doing that. Well, and it's it's mathematical, really, because music has timing and beat. So every member mm-hmm. of the orchestra that starts at the same time finishes their notes at the same time because there's timing in music and. As, as humans, we have this natural pattern recognition, whether it's in physical, uh, mathematical, musical forms, we recognize pattern. And that just, that's just absolutely astounding to me. And it's an example, I think, of what modern society has decided because of GPSs and, and roadmaps we don't yeah. need anymore. And it sounds like you guys are working real hard to kind of reconnect people with that and, and like restore that wisdom. Yeah, and that's not to say that we won't use a GPS device from time to time. I mean, we're not complete, uh, you know, retro grunts about the thing. Um, but there is there is something to be said to knowing, you know, I doggone it, my phone, I, I lost my signal or, or whatever, that just gives you a level of, of like, well, you know, I can do without it. Uh, I have a background of skills and knowledge that, that can help me if, you know, this other stuff doesn't work. Yeah, and i got to say, I've been places with a GPS, where you mm-hmm. turn it to the satellite, you can, you're hitting five, six birds, and you got good signal on them, and you still don't get a lock. There's just right. times and uh, situations where... So I always like say primitive skills versus modern technology is like, if I'm going to teach a young person how to do multiple, multiplication, addition, subtraction, division, I'm going to teach them their basic times in addition and subtraction tables and division tables up to 12. Then I'm going to mm-hmm. teach them basic compound math, and I'm going to teach them long division and fractions. And then I'll put a, hot, a calculator in their hot little hand, but I'm going to teach them the fundamentals first uh, because right. then the calculator becomes something that adds power versus limits your learning. Exactly, exactly. It's just another tool in your arsenal. So, um, with these, uh, these, these, these gatherings you do, I imagine they open up an awful lot of opportunity to kind of build community. That's yeah. one of the biggest things I think is, is hugely important about these gatherings is, is the sense of community. Um, I did not get to finish listening to the Matthew Stein interview you had last week, but I recognize an important point he made early on in the interview where he was talking about, you know, if, if there is a, uh, you know, a scenario where there's a breakdown, um, it's hugely important to understand the power of community. 
and, you know, where things work out in that community. And, you know, in, in the case of the rendezvous, when you gather at one of these events, you know, it's an intentional event based on skills. There are people there from all walks of life, and uh, you come together and create a village in the course of that event. So, you know, we have over in this section, there's the people doing flint napping. There might be some people over there practicing fire. There's some people over here making baskets. There's some people preparing the food and, uh, you know, and people scraping hides. Some people might be making music. And what you've really got during the course of that event is the true experience of a village, like the way it might have been. And people are connecting in a way. You know, we have music, art, stories, songs. And people are connecting in a way that, um, that oftentimes is difficult to capture in the dominant culture. Absolutely. And, I mean, to me, it's, I guess, an earth skill to me would, like, community building is part of the earth skill repertoire, right? Because that is part of how people survived. If if somebody was born into one of these villages 10,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago mm-hmm. or whatever, they would probably learn how to do just about everything adequately. But then they would right. specialize and do one or two or three or four things at an expert level, and they would then take on apprentices, and they wouldn't just teach people the basics. They would have certain apprentices that were aspiring to that mastery. And that entire community is built around that. You, there are people, you know, I think anybody can probably learn to flint nap, but there's also that person that you show them how it works, and the first time they do it, they do it beautifully. And, right. and I think that person has a natural talent, just like some people can draw, and some people like me can't draw a straight line with a ruler. Mm-hmm. And that what you're good at, you generally enjoy doing. So the the whole village community concept is built around people being good at something and then doing it very well and actually enjoying being that component of the community. Right, and it's and it's such a charge because you recognize once you get in there and you start doing this stuff, you may have a natural affinity towards one thing or another, and then whatever your skill level may be, you may have something to trade with someone else. You may not be the best flint napper, but you might be a really good wood carver. And you may be able to trade a beautiful blade for a spoon that you carved or something like that. And we actually, one of the things that we do at the event is uh, as an intentional trade blanket. And there's no telling what's going to be valuable to one person or another when you get to this trade blanket because you don't know what everybody else's skill level is. Uh, or, or you might. You might know that, you know, this person is an expert flint napper. I'm going to put this on the trade blanket and hope that, you know, what I've put down is worthy to him for a trade, or you could do side trades as well. You know, um, someone who's been scraping a hide all day and has, you know, the most beautiful buckskin that, that you can imagine, and you might be good at sewing. Um, and it's just, it's a, it's fantastic to see things operating in that way. It's a real, uh, it's a real amazing, you know, experience to see that community come together. You know, I, I look at that and I just see that's the foundation of, of a positive economic system. That's how the entire concept of an economic system came about. And then right. certain groups would become known for certain things, and durable, non-breakdown uh, goods became a means of exchange. So the first currency was likely flint knives uh, for at least mm-hmm. certain regions of the world because that was something that if I didn't need your meat and you wanted my grain – I could take the flint knife from you, and it would never go bad. And sooner or later, I knew somebody somewhere else would be willing to take that flint knife, even if I didn't need it. So yeah. it, these durable components became the first true currencies. They're good. They're a great currency, and there's also just the level of trade for skill. Sure. You know, if, if 
you know, when, when it comes right down to it, if you lose your if you lose your survival kit pack or, or your your bag's gone, you know, for whatever reason, it got lost and you know. I mean, there could be any number of reasons it just got lost, and it's a tragedy when it happens, and I certainly don't want to lose mine. But with the loss of that, you know, whatever skills you have can help you have a backup, and then you've also got something to trade if you can, you know, continue to work with those skills. You may be able to, to trade with somebody. And, and yeah, it's, it's almost like the ultimate insurance policy, having those kinds of skills. Can you give us an example of some of the uh, classes that are taught? I mean, you've mentioned a few, but... Um, well, let's see. Well, I teach. Uh, I teach a couple classes, and um, well, my background is uh, is you know I'm an endangered species biologist now, and so I'll teach some stuff about birds, uh, nature observation. Um, gosh, um, you know, there's I teach a class called Zen and the Art of Wood Splitting. You know, it's a real simple class on wood splitting, but there's a lot of folks who just don't know how to go out there and split a piece of wood, and it and if you really get into it, and it, you know. I mean, I, I do it for recreation. I really enjoy wood splitting. Um, I teach people how to work with bamboo, growing, harvesting, and the many uses of bamboo, grove etiquette, splitting it, making spoons, cups, bowls, forks, didgeridoos, plant stakes, fences. You know, I made my treehouse walls uh, with with uh, with bamboo. You know, the chicken coop has bamboo around it. Um you know, a couple of other things, you know, hand drumming. I'm also a percussionist, and so I teach, you know, a class in hand drumming and how to bring in your non-dominant hand um, for the music around the campfire. I'm not sure if that answers your question completely. What, what you were asking about more... Um, just more, more of the classes in general. That's definitely a good start there. I was just trying to give people mm-hmm. kind of an overview. If they went to a, <coughs> excuse me, an Earth Skills gathering, what would be some of their, you know, their options of, of, of things they could learn? Well, if you give me just a second, I know you can do a little bit of editing, but if you give me a second, I can pull up the list. Okay. Because um, I have a list of classes that are taught here. So fire making, open hearth cooking, pottery, blacksmithing, flint mapping, bone and antler tools, uh, stone tools, weaving and textiles, cordage and twining, um, how to make netting, basketry, knots, something as simple as knots, knife sharpening. Which is a huge thing. Um, we have we have a thing called knife religion. Sometimes, I mean, the edge of the knife is a hugely important thing. Um, nature awareness, edible and medicinal plants, harvesting, uh, slings and bolas, rabbit sticks, atlatls and darts, bows and arrows, traps and snares, spears, primitive cookery, soap making, natural dyes, useful wild plants, pitch sticks. You ever made a pitch stick? I actually I haven't. What's a pitch stick? Maybe I have. Um, <laughs> it's, it's 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 kind of the way that we glue our world together uh, on the primitive skills level. Um, it's taking the sap of a tree and combining it with some other elements, including wax or or shell or um, ash or something like that, and you know creating something that is durable and carryable that's not sticky right there at hand, but when you melt it down, you can use it as a, or you warm it up, you can use it as a glue. Oh, very cool. No, I, I've not done that. When you said yeah, fish so stick, I was thinking, you know, when I was a kid, what we would do is we'd go get a sapling, about six mm-hmm. foot, and cut it off, nice flexible one that would make it like a good fishing pole, put a point yeah. on it, and then we'd get these, uh, there were like a million uh, different apple trees around, these little tart, hard apples. And uh, then we would make each other have black and blue marks from about 100 yards away by slinging them at each other. 
And uh, that was actually a pretty, they were actually pretty accurate. It was amazing how quickly you could get to a point where you could hit something about the size of a paint can at 25, 30 yards and you could hit a human at a hundred pretty easy. It was, wow. uh, it was really amazing. I mean, I always thought, you know, that could be actually modified to a true weapon with something like a stone with a hole in it or something like that. But it really, we just called them apple throwers and every, every teenage kid in, in the coal region knew how to make them. Well, that almost sounds a little bit like our Adelaide and Dart Pie. Yeah, it, it has so the same principle. It has the same principle as a, as an Adelaide, but it's it's much simpler and nowhere near as effective. It's not something you're, you're tossing a dart that can penetrate with, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, it's uh, it was a good way to blow time when you were 15 and bored. Yeah. Oh, you know, kids get into all kinds of trouble, don't they? Yeah. Um, let me see some of the other classes. Primitive shelters and structures, and, uh, and structures, you know, just like a survival shelter. Mm-hmm. Uh, blowguns, you know, making blowguns out of river cane. Um, indigenous musical instruments. There's hide tanning, of course, clothing and adornments, moccasin making, tribal life, tribal games, tracking and stalking, and, and uh, straight up sustainability. Awesome. Sounds like a way uh, to live. You know, <laughs> it sounds like well, a great place to go live rather than just having a vacation. I, oh, I, you, know, it really is. You, you have some people that come that teach or partake that, that don't just do this on weekends. They kind of you know still live this way to a degree anyway. That's really true. And we have several of our uh, you know the people that come and teach that are actually living on a in a pretty um, you know, a very, very, I would say, primal way, but they're they're really trying to live the ways of their ancestors on a on a true natural level, uh, and they make great instructors, you know, because they're living it every day. Um, and then, you know, that's just a basic list. And and every time we have one of these events, there's something new, from safe wilderness water to, you know, someone is always coming up with something new that that you know our ancestors taught or something that they've discovered on their own. And that's, I think, one of the, the most incredible things that I found from doing this stuff is that it, it, it really makes you think. You really have to, you have to train your mind to think again, to think about how these things might have occurred, not only with our ancestors, but how they're happening right now in your hands. You know, it's one thing to read about this stuff and to think about it on that sort of cerebral level, but when you put it in the physical level, when you put it in your hands and you start to work with it, it becomes, you know, at times I've almost wondered if there wasn't a sense of um, cellular memory that we have sometimes with some of the skills. You know, when you find someone who's really a natural at something like this, do they have heritage that their people in the past may have had some experience with that and they have just naturally somehow, you know, continued to uh, to develop that? I, you know, it's, it's, it's a mystery to me, but it is it's pretty... I mean, there's a whole man of anthropology and spirituality that go into that question, and I don't have an answer, but I can tell you that I, I fundamentally believe, after working with so many people in so many different aspects of life, that there's something to that. There's whether it's it's a microcellular thing that's handed down, whether it's genetic, whether it's a, a spiritual connection. There is there are people that have a predisposition that I have to believe there's some historical component to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's tons of fun, you know. There's, you know, and, and like I said, there's lots of other classes. So you know, people may come and they look at the class and go, oh, "I'm not sure I want to do that." But any given day, there's at least, you know, twelve to twenty classes awesome. uh, that you get to choose from. And the um, the most difficult thing is really figuring out which one to take first. Sure, because <laughs> there's so many, and that's why we have people that come back year after year after year. And 
you know, and take classes that they haven't taken or, or um, you know, or, you know, continue to develop and hone the one skill that they want to become an expert at. You know, we have at this event some of the experts who are published and, uh, um, you know, are, are well-known uh, for, for being experts in their field, and they come back year after year to teach this stuff. We're fortunate for that. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned a, a term in there I really liked when I heard it. You didn't really elaborate on what you mean by it, though, but nature observation skills. Yeah, yeah, nature observation skills. You know, that's really one of the – some people would say that, that nature observation is probably one of the most important survival skills you can have. I mean, just being aware of what's going on around you. And I don't just mean, you know, what are the perceived threats when you're walking down a city street. That's, that's important as well. But when you walk around in the woods, uh, one, of the, one of the classes I've recently been involved in and hope to begin teaching is, um, is advanced bird language. So being a, an ornithologist with a background in birds, um, I, I can recognize most of the birds, you know, by song, call, silhouette, uh, there's always some some outliers out there that you know kind of mystify me, and I got to figure those out. But one of the things that has come to my awareness over the course of time and listening and watching is how the birds signal what's going on in the wilderness around you. I mean, they really tell you a story of what's happening. I'm sure if you sat in a stand long enough you've, and been quiet, you've heard a disturbance happening over in one area, and then after that disturbance occurred, you see something move through that area, whether it's a deer or a fox or you know whatever it could be. Or when you're, you're bow hunting for deer, your most hated enemy can be a blue jay. You'll, right. you'll be sitting there and chickadees land on your arrow and you're like, they're all cool and all. And a freaking blue jay will see mm-hmm. you and realize what you are and give a few screams. And you're like, well, that's blown it for about an hour. Yeah, and sometimes they're called the fourth sentinel. We've had to really be careful about those. They're they're in the corvid family with the crows and the ravens. And those birds are just incredibly smart and they're somewhat mischievous. Um, they can really... They can really cause wreak some havoc. Um, <laughs> they are intelligent. It's amazing, and they have they have like hierarchies where you can tell they have forward scouts that go out in advance of their groups. You know, and right. the, the, the crows. You're right. Crows definitely do the same thing. You know, the, the, if you're I've crow hunted as a like varmint hunting thing, and if if the uh, the sentinel busts you, you're done. They're yeah. they're all gone. Yeah. So that's one of the classes, you know, nature observation and tracking. So some of that includes tracking, um, you know, understanding the tracks that are around you, you know, what direction do they go, what are the, you know, what are the pressure points on the track, can you tell what the animal was thinking, what it was doing, which way was it looking. Um, and there's also just things as simple as understanding the ecosystem around you when you transition from a, you know, pine-dominated forest to an oak-dominated forest. You know, what kinds of plants might you find that you could you could forage on or that you might be able to cook or that... Uh, you could use for one thing or another. And really just those observational skills are sometimes I think so lacking. You know, at least in the society we, many of us have grown up in, uh, they've just not been taught where they would have in our, in our heritage been one of the crucial things that everyone grows up with learning every single day because you're always out in it. And um, it, it almost becomes innate to learn these things. But now we're having to relearn and one of the terms I really like uh, is rewild. We're rewilding some of the some of the innate skills that that we've had in the past. Do you feel like that? Because I know I do. That that a lot of what you're talking about is a human being being a, a natural human being versus an artificial human being. 
Uh, I'm not one that craps on technology or anything, but when it builds to a point where it divorces you from being in touch with what you are, I think it causes a lot of modern misery. I think there's a lot of people that you oh, yeah. sit behind a desk every day and they're miserable. They have no idea why they're miserable. And I think it's why things like planting a garden can transform a life because all of a sudden the connection's restored. That's it. That's it exactly. You, you, you just hit it right there. And, um, and, you know, when you say human being, I mean, that's, human being is not a noun, that's a verb. Right? Yeah, yeah. We're being, we are in action, we are moving all the time, and, and when we're doing something, you know, and we're, when we're, you know, sometimes we call it right living, uh, then we're being what, you know, what we're called to do. And I think, uh, there's no question that, that, you know, just getting people outside, whether it's the last child in the wood concept of Richard Louvre and, and some of the other folks or, or, um, or whatever it may be, I think it's an incredibly positive experience to get out and learn these things. Uh, and do them, and that's that's one of the you know along with permaculture to me. I remember the first permaculture gathering I went to, and talked to some of the people about doing it was was how incredibly positive it was in the face of all this stuff that we're worried about and concerned about in the world. You know, there's something really positive going on, and and it's it's happening in permaculture and it's happening in some of these these uh, earth skills gatherings, and um, it's a way to really reconnect and, and create something positive that people feel good about. And what I love about the permaculture thing is it overlaps with you know what you guys call earth skills or some people call primitive skills is permaculture mm-hmm. is actually a, a primitive skill. It and really is. There's there's like it's like a multi-headed monster. There's all these dimensions. Some are very very close to what we would think of as conventional agriculture done in a different way. But a lot of permaculture's roots, if you walk through. A native managed permaculture forest. They certainly would have called it that, but they would call it where they got mm-hmm. their food. If you weren't aware of what was going on, you wouldn't even notice that any kind of agricultural component was going on. And I think that when we first came to this country, uh, this continent, I should say, and we pretty much emaciated the forest from the Atlantic Ocean to the Mississippi River, we looked around and wondered what all these native people were living on other than deer and elk and buffalo. And the reality was they were living on an awful lot, and they were actively managing these forest systems, but yet the European eye could not see the management that was going on. They just couldn't see yeah. what it was. Right, right, because they didn't know what it was. I mean, it's hard to see something that you're not you know, completely unaware of. You know, we've all heard of the mounds for the Three Sisters Gardens and all, and that's that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that, well, like when I did a, a wilderness walk with Chris, Christopher Nidges in California, he was showing these things like Manzanito uh, and, and other these other plants that were native out there and explaining how that, like, after the native people will run out, it looked like wild growth for almost 100 years before the systems start wherever they were protected, you know, and man didn't go in there and cut them down. And then the systems themselves started to break down and fail. And what it was is they were being actively managed so subtly that it took almost a century of removing man's hand that was actually guiding it for the problems to become evident. So these folks were not out there farming the way we think of toiling in the soil. They were doing these little subtle things like simply replanting a few seeds here or throwing some mulch on this or cutting back a few competitors. Very, very subtle over time, and that is permaculture. Right, right. Right, and if you have a piece of land that you can work with, you know, some homesteading land, you can do it in a way that, that provides you with that sustenance over the long term, you know, and you're not looking at the, just the short-term gain there. You're looking at creating a space in your land that allows it to 
really recover and you're, you know, you're building soil. You're not just growing plants. You're building soil and you're building, uh, a, you know, a healthy and sustainable ecosystem over the course of time. I think this was some of like the detractors of permaculture don't get because they say if we just let everything be a forest, you, you can only live so much on a forest. But it, permaculture is almost creating like a designer forest. We can decide mm-hmm. what the canopy tree is. We can decide right. what the undergrowth is. We can decide what the edge has in it. We can decide, and there'll be some natives and some invasives that'll come along and, and fill niches there. But we can we can determine what the dominant species are. And we can let the system function the way it's designed, but we can control not so much the inputs, but the outputs. Yeah, and then and there's some some evidence now, and we're you know we're gaining more and more evidence as time goes by how some of the Native Americans, at least in uh, in the area I live in North Carolina, dealt with the forest. We have a, you know a completely different forest system here now than we did back in times past, you know, in pre-colonial times, and uh, our understanding now, as limited as it is, is, is beginning to show us that there was much more what we call Piedmont Prairie in this area. There were a lot more longleaf pines, you know, sort of a uh, oak, hickory, and pine, mixed pine forest that was burned on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And the suppression of that fire has has really been one of the primary causes of species becoming less common and more endangered. But it, it had so many benefits for the native people living here, whether it was you know, to create crop rows in an area or to improve the hunting um, or to improve some of the the plants that were fire-dependent that provided food. Uh, you know, this is just something that they did. It was it was a practice, and it was in practice for thousands of years. And, uh, and it was, in its own way, a type of permaculture. It absolutely was, and it was, I, I think when people hear that, like, it's kind of like a slash-and-burn thing, but the reality was, it was done very controlled in certain areas, and other areas were allowed to go to full maturity. And mm-hmm. this, 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 like what I've seen uh, where there are still some Aboriginal people that practice this type of agriculture, when they decide they're going to burn a new, you know, what we would call an acre, and they would just call an area, the whole damn group gets together and discusses it for days sometimes to decide how much, where, and when. And because yeah. they know what they're doing, they know they're taking away something to get something back, and they know that can't be done wholesale. It has to be done in certain areas at certain times, and the, you know you can only expand at the rate that the forest can recover. Yeah, and then you know certainly they probably had made some mistakes and learned from those mistakes. Well, you sure, learned from the mistakes, but yeah, and you got to let your neighbors know if you're getting ready to set the forest on fire. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Rates out, you know, get ready to go. Yeah, I watched this documentary, it was on Nat Geo or something like that, where these guys went into New Guinea and lived among this tribe of people, and that was exactly the scenario that they were determining, you know, they were gonna, they were gonna open up a new area to grow in, but, you know, how do they, you know, no, notify the neighboring tribe without starting a war, and, you know, if something goes wrong, you know, is somebody gonna be basically whacked because they were, uh, they had some weird name for like some kind of a, a like a, a demon spirit, and, you know, the guys that were there, these, these two guys that were there living among them were like, man, it's probably gonna be us if they decide somebody did that. But it was really neat to see that they at least cared before they acted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So um, you, you've also mentioned you are an endangered species biologist. Um, I bet that changes how you look at the forest. It, it really has, and, and, it, and uh, as I mentioned to you before we started the, you know, the, the interview, that um, it, to me it was brought, brought to the forefront of my mind when you were discussing systems uh, in another 
uh, podcast recently that you know some of these um, you know it's it's we can't neglect the, the ecological system the ecosystem that we that we are all tied to and whether it's an economic system there's there's no bigger common denominator that we all have to experience than the ecosystem and when we're looking at endangered species we're recognizing that something is you know is causing these things to become less common um, in some cases they were never abundant it was just a rare creature uh, in other cases it has been you know human intervention a lot of cases really it has been human intervention so when we talk about management of endangered species we're not managing the species we're really managing people you know we're trying to manage how humans behave around you know these things whether it's you know, can you put a strip mall in this particular type of habitat, or can you, you know, do something like that? So, yeah, um, you know, you're, you're hitting on some of those very, very uh, uh, hot, a hot button issue with me because whenever I talk about animal conservation with, let's say, some people that are uh, a little more of the vegan, liberal, hippie world, and they see me as this mean, evil hunter that kills animals, they they want to equate me with the problem, and and my the response to that has always been there are some animals that have been hunted to or to the brink of extinction, but the single biggest problem most species have isn't the hunt or its habitat loss. Yeah, that's really true, and, and it's actually been brought to my attention just recently. Um, you know, you know, originally we thought that uh, fire suppression and wetland drainage, you know, were the biggest habitat loss causers. Um, I've, I've it's been brought to my attention recently that actually introduction of exotics is probably one of the biggest now um, problems causing species endangerment uh, and that's globally I mean whether it's whether it's some kind of plant like microstegium that's getting all in the wetlands or it's the introduction of rats to a, an island that never saw them before eating all the eggs it's it's a big thing um, hunting pressure you know historically in the past we don't have any evidence you know any real strong evidence that that was the sole contributing factor to the extinction of the species. Um, although there are there are some anecdotal stories of you know somebody you know taking the last animal. That's it's really it can get a little gray in that area. Um, I mean, we can see areas where, as a hunter, even I have to go. Yeah, it was us, buffalo, but that was more. That wasn't mm-hmm. so much hunting. That was more of let's let's bring the the native population to its knees by taking away its food. Passenger pigeon would be real hard for me to make a case that hunters didn't pay a, play a big part in. But then I could turn around and show animals like the wood duck that was highly, uh, I don't know if we would even call it endangered. You're the expert there, not me. But definitely a species in great decline in the 20s and 30s. And today is very, very prevalent because of habitat restoration done shockingly by, by hunters. And in some cases, beavers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Which of course we, um, we hit the beaver up pretty hard for his pelt at one time too. So there's like you're saying it's system, systemic. So okay, yeah, they're shooting a lot of wood ducks, but when we take away the beaver and he's not creating the wetlands, and then there's not the breeding habitat, and I, I think that's what people miss is they the, the, there's one animal or plant that doesn't seem that significant can create this chain reaction. Yeah, well, nothing exists in a void. You know, all things are connected in one way or another, and. Every one of them has some level of dependence on the other species, including ourselves. And what I see with the loss of some of these species is that we're having a breakdown in systems. And it's worth being concerned about. I mean, we talk about the web of life and the circle of life, and there's sometimes, we, you know, it can get kind of woo-woo out there, you know. But the fact of the matter is these things are integrally 
connected. And uh, there are some keystone species, and for the loss of one or two can mean we risk losing an entire guild of species, and, and things can change. What gives me hope in that is knowing that this is a resilient planet, and there's a lot of resilient species on the planet, including ourselves, and things we'll consider. I mean, they'll continue. They'll, I mean, the Earth has been through massive extinction events in the past, and it has bounced back. Um, it's really a question of what kind of world we want to live in. You know, I mean, is, 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 do, we want to, do we only want to experience some of these trees and plants and animals in, uh, you know, in the zoo, or, or is it something we'd like to be able to walk out in the woods and, and be able to still? And are we willing to make certain? And are we willing to make certain sacrifices so that there can't just be wild populations, but wild populations that actually function? I mean, the bison is a perfect example. Um, it, it's to me, it's almost inconceivable that they can be truly restored at this point, even though there's plenty of them out there, and there are some wild populations because, the, you know, roads and barbed wire have pretty much screwed that up. You can't have 50 yeah. million giant horned cows wandering from Canada down to Mexico anymore because that just doesn't work, and we've permanently altered that possibility. Yeah, yeah, we really have, and I wonder, you know, over the course of time, how that will continue to evolve. You know, with regard to all these species, I wonder how it's going to continue to evolve. Yeah, and I mean, I look at that, and I just think of the fertility alone that was lost because of that for the plant species that were supported by the bison, that the bison ate the perennial grasses and contribute. I mean, it just, it really does start to, to kind of like, it's like pulling one little thread out of something, and you just watch the whole thing unravel. Yeah, there's a cascade effect. But and we you know and I think in some circumstances we really don't know what we're doing with with some of these things and and I think um, you know we are a we are now a you know there have you heard this this uh, this concept that they're saying that we are now living in the Anthropocene period of the Earth? I have to confess I have no idea what that means. I can guess. Anthro meaning but... <laughs> humans like anthropogenic yeah. like anthropogenic caused by humans. So the Anthropocene period where Humans now at 7 billion are one of the largest uh, geologic and forces on the planet. I mean, we move mountains. We get the coal out. We pull oil out. We, we do a lot of things in, in the course of our existence on the planet, and we've covered every uh, square inch of it, you know. And so now um, there, there's this, this term has come up from time to time in conversations that we – we're in the Anthropocene period. Wow. That, uh, that humans are, are, are so greatly affecting everything that's happening around us that we really need to take a stock. Yeah, that's and I, you know, I honestly don't know where we go from here, but, you know, in the process of it, we've got to do something positive. And that's, that circles right back around to the Earth skills thing. You know, if we're looking at living in a way that, you know, that, that is on, you know, with the Earth on the Earth's terms, then we yeah. can have a better perspective of our place and our possible future. Well, what you're saying there makes me think of something Jeff Lawton has become real fond of saying, in that if 200 years ago we had just taken all the people off the earth, the earth could have fixed itself, right? But today yeah. it's done so much wrong that if you just took all of us away, many of these systems would continue to break down and not repair. And sure, the earth would eventually have life. And you know, it is, like you said, it's a very resilient planet, but there's catastrophe coming that we've put in motion, but at this point, it's up to us to fix it. You couldn't even fix it just by, like, it used to be environmental, environmentalism could just be stop, right? And now mm -hmm. that actually we have to take an active hand in repair. Yeah, yeah. 
and that's where the positive things like uh, like permaculture and and learning some of these ancient skills I think come in. You know, reconnects us with with what that might be. Because there's a big question. I mean, you know, where do we go from here? It's important to know a little bit about our past in order to figure out where to go with our future. So, so if folks want to attend your next coming event. Where's that going to be? When's that going to be? Uh, the next event is April 22nd through the 29th. It is in a place called Lafayette, Georgia. It's just south of Chattanooga. It's about 20, that's about 30, 35 minutes south of Chattanooga, Tennessee. Beautiful patch of land there owned by a guy named Smokey, who's a wonderful landowner. It's a private, private piece of land. Um, and he loves having us on the land there. And, uh, uh, and yeah, and you can, you can register by going to the, the website, Earth Skills. I think it's primitiveskills.org. Yeah, I have that here on your outline, primitiveskills.org. But you were willing to let uh, audience members get a discount if they contact you directly? Yeah, if you contact me directly within the next couple of weeks, I'd say, um, we can give you a 10 to 15% discount, and we are really encouraging, strongly encouraging people to pre-register this time because it, it makes such a big difference in terms of how we can handle the food. The event includes, you know, you come to the event, it's, um, you know, so the arrival day is the 22nd, that's a Sunday, and then the classes will begin on Monday, which is the 23rd. And, um, you know, there's a class in the morning and a class in the afternoon, and then usually there's some kind of campfire program every evening, um, or you could enjoy yourself at any one of the many campfires that happen around the area. Uh, breakfast and dinner are provided, so you don't have to worry about those, but, you know, you are on your own for lunch. Um, and the food is great. It's usually locally grown organic food um, coming off of somebody's, somebody's permaculture farm. Um, and that's the way to do it. Um, yeah, I encourage as many people as want to learn these skills to come. And, and the best way they can get that discount uh, at this point would be they could email you directly before they register. Um, would that be right? That would be the best way, yes. Okay. And, and Fuzz's email, folks, is fuzz, F-U-Z, dot Sanderson, S-A-N-D-E-R-S-O-N, at gmail.com. And he's making this available for the next couple of weeks. So if you're listening to it uh, four months from now, not only has the event already happened, don't don't try to hit him up for a discount. Because <laughs> <Yeah. We laughs> he's supposed to live on Oops, sorry. We have another event coming up in the fall called the Falling Leaves Rendezvous. If you can't make it to the spring one, it happens in October. Um, and there's event, there's information on the website. Our website is in the process of being updated right now. So, Where's your um, event in October going to be at? Uh, same place. Same place. Same place. I might try to make mm-hmm. that one myself. I, I, I'm so heavily booked this spring, I can't cram another event in, but I'll, I'll look at that because that's not a bad drive for us really at all. Well, get in touch with me beforehand. You know, if you want to come do it, if you want to come as uh, as a uh, instructor or as just a participant, you know, just let me know. I, I know that you have at least enough background that you could potentially add, you know, some significant instructing to yeah. the event. Um, yeah. And it is, you know, it's, it's an event that, that has to support itself based on people coming and paying. Sure. But we also have, we try to you know, take care of our instructors when they come. And we have people that have been teaching there for, you know, 25 to 27 years. This is the longest continually running primitive skills event in the country. And, and I imagine in addition to all of this um, knowledge and skill and fun, people might get a chance to meet some folks that they otherwise wouldn't intermingle with. Uh, I'd kind of talked to you before the show about that, you know, for everything from the, the guy that's the tactical survivalist probably to the uber bush hippie. That's, that's, so, that's so correct. You know, we have um, everything from elders to infants. Uh, 
you know, people that, that are, so kids are welcome. There's, there's tiered rates for people of different ages. Um, and yeah, and I think it's an important thing to, to note that when you come to, to any event, really, you're going to see people from different walks of life. Some of them are really living it, uh, and doing the best they can, you know, to survive. And you may see somebody come walking up in buckskin that looks, um, you know, like it hasn't been washed in quite a while. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and and that's and you may or you may have somebody come up in some you know full on tactical gear. Sure. Uh, we, we have everybody you know we have everybody there. I think the important thing is you know when you get to an event like this is that you realize that we're here for a common thing. We're all here to learn from each other. And I've I've seen people that I thought I had nothing in common with, and it was really just because of you know a few piercings here and there and some tattoos. I thought yeah, but when I got talking to that person, I found them to be one of the most. Um, knowledgeable and uh, and kind and just wonderful people to talk to you know just about philosophy and and skills and uh and i and i realized that i had approached the entire situation with prejudice because really i didn't take the moment to you know to to drop the the attitude and and meet the person for you know who they are a human being with real human experiences and and uh, and human feelings and uh yeah, you know, we, we, we get, definitely get all walks of life, but that's, that's part of what makes this such an incredible community because, you know, we have the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. You know, they're all here, and they all may dress differently and have different, you know, um, standards of living, um, but that's okay because we're all together. I, I think the community aspect is huge. I, I guarantee you, I, in fact, I, I said yesterday when I had Steve Harris on that I almost have to stop calling the people that listen to this show an audience. Uh, because an audience sounds so cold and it's, it's really a right. community. And I would guarantee you that in this community, the forum, the listener base, what have you, there are people of all walks of life. There are people that just want to make sure that they're not going to lose their retirement. And there's people that are preparing for the end of the world as we know it and everything in between, but they have something in common that they, they understand what they do matters. And mm-hmm. I, I would imagine that your gatherings are very much the same, that there are people that know that there has to be something more than nine to five grind. And whether they've taken that to the extreme or they just want it to be part of their life, they have that common bond. Yeah. And it's one of the things I've appreciated so much about your show. You know, I may not agree with everything that, that all of your guests say or that you say. Thank God. But it's out there. You know, and <laughs> right. And you know, and but you but you but you uh you couch it in a caveat that, you know, you gotta do what works for you. Absolutely. And um and I, I think that's hugely important and that's that's what we're doing, you know, we're we're creating something here that hopefully is you know, we're just trying to do something positive by God. For everybody, you know, because we, we've got to go somewhere, and we can either go down or we can go up, and and um, you know, because the path we're on has some some real serious. I have some concern about it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and uh, you know, we're we're going to just try and do the best we can with what we've got in our knowledge, and and if nothing else, we're going to improve our knowledge and uh, and move forward. I, I completely agree with that. And uh, kind of on a last thought here, I would imagine attending one an event like this, uh, whether it's your event or anything that's similar, uh, can for many people be very transform- transformative as an experience. It really can be. And I, and I should point out that, that ours is not the only Earth Skills event out there. There's a lot of gatherings. Uh, my favorite, of course, is the one that we do, the River King Rendezvous, which is in April, and the Fallen Leaves Rendezvous. They're under the umbrella of the Earth Skills gatherings. But there's also one that happens in um, up at Harvard of Grace, Maryland, called the Maps Meet. Uh, I just came back from the Florida Earth Skills Gathering that was held February 1 through 6 down near Gainesville. There's the Southeastern Permaculture Gathering. There's Winter Count out west. 
uh, run by Dave Westcott and Rabbit Stick. Those are a couple of, of really yep. formative ones. They've been going on a long time. Um, and then one that was recently started up near Asheville, North Carolina, called the Firefly Gathering. Oh, I've heard about that and, one. Mm-hmm. And they're all really great gatherings. Each one has its own different flavor, you know, and and, and oftentimes has a little bit difference in clientele, um, uh, you know, and just and run a little bit differently. Some of them provide meals. Some of them don't. Some of them, you know, have, have really professional paid instructors come. Some of them are, are you know, are new. and They just all have a little bit different. But um, but each one of them I really like. I mean, and I've noticed that going from from gathering to gathering, the people that are interested in this 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 type of skill learning often you'll see some of the you know some of your friends show up at other ones, and the community grows. You know, as as these rendezvous grow, um, our community grows, and there are more and more people learning and doing this kind of stuff. Just as I see the prepper community growing, and there's a lot more people. I don't know if it's just because people are becoming aware of the general you know, of what's going on in the world or uh, or because it's 2012 or, you know, whatever the case may be. But um, but that's where it is. There's, there's several other gatherings. So um, one thing I wanted to ask you about for people, and I guess you probably have more info on your site, but as far as, like, housing, are there any, you know, suggestions or restrictions? Like, I've been to events where you're going to be in a sleeping bag or a tent of some kind, and I've been to some where, you know, RVs are okay. So, I mean, what is kind of the housing uh, gear side of things for uh, for your particular events? Yeah. For the rendezvous, it is a, a camping event. It's camping out. Uh, some people do bring RVs, and in Smokey's Field there, he has uh, some RV hookups. Um the the town itself of Lafayette is really ten minutes down the road, five to ten minutes down the road, and there are some hotels available. So if people feel like they want to come and learn this stuff but don't want to deal with the discomfort of having to you know stay in a, in a tent, or if there's a storm coming and you need a place to to hold up, you know, in the case of a you know a big rain event, or if you um, want to convince a, a family of- member spouse that doesn't really like this whole sleeping in the dirt thing to go. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, you know, and we try to make, you know, amends for people that have different abilities and, and may or may not be able to get across, you know, the top of this hill or that. Um, so, yeah, we have, you know, the RVs are, are okay. Uh, we do restrict them to a certain area. Now, it's not like a um, a black powder rendezvous where there's, you know, a certain area where no one can go unless you're in period dress. Okay. Uh, although, some, you know, a lot of people do really like to, to show their period dress and, you know, and come in in full-on, you know, costume, whether it's Civil War era or, you know, complete buckskin. Um, and that's, we welcome that. I mean, that's really fun to see people who go around. And some people like to set up their campsites in a really, really, you know, fashionable way so that you've got, you know, a real nice, you know, cast iron cooking hearth and, and everything is set up. We usually have a few TPs, um, authentically made, and, uh, you know, and different people might just use a regular pop-up tent and put that down in the field somewhere where they're, you know, they feel safe and secure. Okay, cool. So, plenty of options. Open to everybody, and there is some period dress stuff going on, but not it's not restricted the way. And I know what you're talking about. I've, I've been to some events where you're not just in dress, you're in character, and I, I, I really right. don't get a lot out of that. I am, you know. <laughs> um, it's fun. Some people really get off on it, and it's fun. Like I can it. see where they go. Yeah. But when I get away for a week and then I've shut my business down and I'm still handling customer service, I like to pop a top on a beer and, and sit around a campfire and tell stories. 
that's one of the beauties of the rendezvous is that we can do that there. Awesome, awesome. Well, hey, Buzz, I really appreciate you being with us today. Again, the website is PredatorSkills.org. Um, get by there, folks, and uh, April 22nd through 29th is the one coming up. And uh, I'm going to look at the schedule and see if maybe I can make the fall gathering in October. Uh, but, yeah, thanks for being here with us today, Fuzz. Glad to do it, Jack. Thanks for having me on. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spierko today along with Fuzz Sanderson, helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Revolution